the book of Matthew. So, again, it is a book written by a Jewish man to Jewish people about a Jewish Messiah. Good, okay? So, we have been studying the book of Matthew now. This is our one-year anniversary. So, um, so there was 12 weeks during this past year that we actually didn't study the book of Matthew. We did other things like the, the mini-series on prayer, and we've had missionaries in and such like that. Um, so, but for a year, I've been saying that, <laughs> about a Jewish man writing the Jewish people about a Jewish Messiah. And uh, I'm glad you got it. <laughs> I'd hate to think that after a year of saying that every su- Sunday that you wouldn't have remembered it. If you remember anything else, you have to know that about the book of Matthew. For the last eight weeks, though, we have been looking at a certain segment of the life of Christ, and that is the final week of his life. And so I mentioned way back when we started into this final week, what we commonly refer to as the Passion Week, that we were going to be taking months looking at this, because really, honestly, as we consider it, the, the, the rest of his ministry, which was extremely important, was all a matter of proving who he was. It was laying the foundation for this week, this time, the preparation of the event that was getting ready to happen. And so during this past eight weeks that we've focused on the final week, again, remember this week that's called Passover week was also a week of feasts that were going on, okay? And that when Jesus entered in the triumphal entry, what we call Palm Sunday, was actually the 10th day of Nisan, Okay? And so as he was going in, that was the day that they would set aside the Passover lamb. And they would take the next four days to examine the Passover lamb to make sure that he was a lamb without blemish. And then on the 14th day of Nisan, at twilight, they would sacrifice that lamb. And then that evening, which began the 15th day of Nisan, because again, remember, we think like Americans, we've got to put on a Jewish cap, okay? And their day began at sundown, and it ends at sundown, okay? So... Think 6 o'clock in your brain, okay, if that makes it easier. What we refer to as 6 o'clock in the evening generally is the beginning of their day. So they would sacrifice the, sac- the, sacrifice the lamb at the end of the 14th day, which is between three and 6 o'clock in the day, at twilight. And then they would roast it, and they would eat it at the beginning of the 15th day, which was just a couple hours later. Make sense? But they would roast it on the 14th day because the 15th day was a holy convocation unto the Lord. It was a special Sabbath, a high Sabbath, and they weren't allowed to do any work on that day, okay? And so all this is going to come into play as we begin to to go into these final days, okay? So all this is going on, and you got to remember then that we're only four days right now into this. Everything that we've just talked about in the last eight weeks is happening within three or four days, okay? This is all moving rapidly for the disciples. There's a whole lot going on. They've had three years, two and a half, three years with Jesus, watching all these miracles and, and the teachings and everything, and, and probably their heads are spinning as it was anyway, and now he's coming into Jerusalem. They, they're thinking that he's going to be the, the, you know, the, the reigning Messiah, but he keeps telling them that, look, I'm going to Jerusalem, I'm going to be handed over, and I'm going to be crucified. They're not, their heads aren't grasping this thing. They're seeing all this thing going on. And so what we looked at the last couple of weeks with the return of Christ all started with the, the fact that his disciples look, said to Jesus, look at the temple, isn't this marvelous? And Jesus said to them what? You see the temple? Not one stone is going to be left upon another. This, what you're looking at, what you're marveling at, it's gone. 
mind burster again. What do you want? This doesn't make any sense. You're supposed to set up your throne in the temple, and now you're telling me, and he says, like, look, guys, you're not getting this thing. And so they ask him, what will, be, what will it be like on the time of your return? And so he then gives them in Matthew 24 and 25 this, if you would, cryptic prophetic teaching. Okay? And I say cryptic because, again, prophecy is best known when? After it happens. Okay? And so we can sit here and we can debate all what's, how it's going to look, but Jesus gives them you know, about the wars, the rumors of wars, the famines and the pestilence and the earthquakes, and he tells them these are just the beginning of the birth pains. And he tells them that, that because evil will abound, the love of many will wax cold. Because these, there's going to be a lot of false prophets and a lot of false messiahs, messiahs, that are going to be out there, false Christs, and they're going to be able to do marvelous, wonderful works that if it was even possible, they would be able to deceive even the very elect. It's going to be an, an incredible time. And then he ends all this. Oh, I'm sorry. I forgot to put up my, my uh, overview slide, right? And he ends all this with this statement that Chuck just read at the beginning of chapter 26. Okay? We're at verse 2, it says, And you know, so it said, you know, verse 1, Now it came to pass when Jesus had finished all these sayings, what sayings? The ones all about the end times, the, his return. When he finished talking about all that, he said to them, he culminated it all with, now you know that after two days is Passover, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. I'm not going to worry about the timing of this just yet. We'll talk about this timing, this two days type stuff, when we get to the actual death. And I'm going to come back to that, that um, schedule, that, that calendar, because I think it's important for us to, to realize the timing that God, okay, you know, the, Jesus died on a Thursday, that's what I believe, okay, not on a Friday. And I think it's very important for us because the Bible comes together and, and very clearly states how all this plays together. Now, you don't have to believe that if you don't want to. That's up to you. But I firmly do because based upon the feasts and based upon um, exact wordings like this one, that after two days, then the Son of Man will be crucified, okay? And so now all of a sudden, you got the disciples, they're, they're faced with this thing again. Jesus is just kind of putting it in, in front of them and in, in really causing them to make a decision of what they are going to believe. Now, the disciples aren't the only ones who have to make a decision what they're going to believe. We see that there are three groups in the passage that we're looking at today who are going to respond to Jesus' ministry. The first one is who? The Pharisees is a whole group. I'll call them the plotters. Okay. The plotters, okay? Because, and that's a picture of who? Caiaphas. How do you know? Uh, you see him? No. <laughs> yeah. But you assume because of the fact that we're going there, right? So, yeah, it's a good picture of what it probably was Caiaphas looked like, okay? But, yes, exactly. There is the religious establishment, okay? These are the ones who I refer to, like, even in my testimony time, about they had a zeal for God, but they lacked knowledge. Why did you think they lacked knowledge? They had hard hearts. I heard somebody else say something. They were in gross tradition, hard hearts. They didn't have a relationship with Christ or with God. Yeah, they didn't want it. Romans 1 says that what may be known of God is revealed even in the very creation, but men suppress the truth. They suppress the truth. They see it, but they make a choice to what? 
They make a choice to not want it. And so, the miracles that Jesus did, did he only do them for the disciples to see? No. Lots of people saw them. When Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, do you remember this? When Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, what happened as a response to it? They plotted. That's when they began their plotting. Now, they were already plotting ahead of time, years before this as well, but they got really serious about this. He raised Lazarus from the dead. Lazarus has been dead for four days. He's in the tomb. You would think if there was anything that would get your attention, it would be raising somebody who'd been in the tomb for four days. But what did the religious establishment do? They plotted to kill him. Before we get to the, the, the text and the context here, this is just something that makes me stop all the time. Because now I'm what? I'm part of the religious establishment. Do you get it? You are part of the religious establishment. You are a conservative Christian. You are a fanatic. At least according to the who? The world. Do you get it? Okay. I mean, you, you're one of those right-wing fundamentalists, if you would. Okay, And I'm not picking, and, and, but I'm just saying that that's how the world sees us. And so you need to understand, if you believe that the Bible is the very Word of God, and you do, you believe that, that it doesn't just contain the Word of God, but that it is the Word of God, right? And that Jesus is God alone, that, that there is no other way to, to heaven other than Jesus Christ. You, you get it? You are the modern-day... Pharisee. You are the modern-day religious establishment. Whether you want to recognize it or not, it doesn't matter. It's who you are. And so I struggle with this with myself because now I know what God's Word says and Jesus is going to come in the cloud, okay? So I get that. But I like to put myself back there. What, and so bring it to today. What would I do if all of a sudden there's a guy on the earth who can heal? And then all of a sudden he raises people from the dead. You get it? This has got to kind of rock your boat just a little bit here and try to make you understand and, and figure out what your theology really is. I mean, we like to pick on these guys, but put yourself in their shoes. James 3.1 says, Be not many masters, for such have the greater condemnation. I know I'm going to give an account for every word that I speak to you. Everything I teach you, I will give an account for that. If I lead you astray, if, I, if I'm a blind leading the blind, if you would, I'm going to give an account. Does it make sense? So, step back for a moment and give Caiaphas and his guys a break for just a moment. Because I'm going to get ready to pick on them in just a moment too, okay? But just think about it. From, from one perspective, they do have a what? They have a responsibility. If they lead the people astray, if they, if, they, if they let them follow this guy, Jesus, and Jesus isn't what? The Messiah. If he's not the real deal, then who are they going to give an account to? To God. So, so there's that part. There's just, I want to soften this just a little bit as we, as we look at these plotters. Clearly, I, I label this, right? And so I'm labeling them as plotters, Okay. But the first thing we see was this, 
the location of the gathering, it's at Caiaphas's. Okay? And this is a big deal because Caiaphas is the, he's the Pope of the day. He's the high priest. Okay? He is the, 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 the big kahuna. And so, so this isn't just a plot that's going on someplace else. It is now escalated to the place where it's at Caiaphas's palace. Okay? And who's there? Well, we got the chief priests, the scribes, and the, the elders. Why do you think it's important that the elders are included there? We've got chief priests, we've got scribes, we've got elders. What does that mean to you? Say, anybody? Who are the chief priests? They're the religious leaders. What do you think scribes are? Yeah, they're, they're semi-between religious and, the, and the, the social. They're the learned guys, okay? And so they're the ones who interpret and, and that kind of stuff. What about the elders? Say again? They're like the lay people. They're, they're, they're the, the, the secular side, okay? So you got both sides coming together on this, is what I'm saying, okay? And so in the, the Jewish tradition, they had what was called the Sanhedrin, Okay? And the Sanhedrin was made up of this group. Note, we're not told whether these chief priests, scribes, and elders are Pharisees or Sadducees. More than likely, there is a combination of these guys. Okay? So this is kind of like the Sanhedrin, or at least a grouping of the Sanhedrin, that's coming together. Okay? This is an official meeting. This is an official meeting, okay? They're, they're, they're coming up with an official policy, Jewish policy. Now, understand, this isn't the Romans who ruled the land, right? So they're coming together, and what do they come together to do? To discuss what they're going to do with Jesus, okay? So, again, remember where we're at, okay? Within this week, what had just occurred? Not the teaching... So don't, don't, don't tell me the teaching of the, the, the last days, because that was to the disciples. They're, they weren't there for that. From their, their perspective, what had just happened? Woe to you, woe to you, woe to you. David's teaching from a couple weeks ago, right? So Matthew 23, all the woe to you passages, okay? And just before that, well, between the cleansing of the temple and the woes, what happened? The examination. That's exactly right. And so every one of them had an opportunity to come. The Pharisees came, the Sadducees came, the scribes came. Every one of them came trying to twist Jesus up. They tried to, to, to make him falter in doctrine. And they couldn't do it, right? And so at the end of all this, Jesus then gives them the woe, 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 woe to you, Pharisees. Woe to you, scribes. Woe to you. Make sense? And so basically he has thrown the gauntlet down and he has told them that they are, according to his theology, okay, so understand, we look hindsight, looking back, we know Jesus is God. Put yourself at that moment in the temple, okay? I mean, this, this teacher threw down the gauntlet because now he is throwing curses, if you would, negative prophecies <laughs> at, at the religious establishment. And they have a decision. I mean, they, the line is drawn. They have got to make a decision here. So what do they do? They come together and they make the decision. The decision is now final. They are going to take him. But note how they want to take him. Not straightforward. Why? 
Say again? Well, we'll get to the people in a second. Why trickery, though? It, 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 the people come as far as the timing, the schedule. But why the strategy of using trickery and gal? Exactly. They tried that straight-on frontal assault. And what happened? They found out that he had spiritual jujitsu, and he was And every time they came out, he was like the, the dragon warrior, and they're up and over walls and smashing things and whatever, you know. I know, hard to make Jesus look like a panda. Anyways, so, but, but you get what I'm saying? I mean, it's like they came on, you know, all together. Like, they, we got this guy. We, you know, we're going to just kind of do this religious gymnastics all around him. And Jesus was like, let me ask you a question then. Who's, who's, who was Messiah? Was he the son of David? And all of a sudden, he <laughs> wipes them out. They tried the full, the full frontal assault. Where did they get him? Mockery. Him standing there in amongst the crowds, crying out, whoa, whoa, whoa. So now they've got to change their strategy. So now they're going to do it by trickery. This is a sad moment for me. Because... This is exactly what you begin to see. Somebody go to Proverbs 6, verse 16 to 19, and then somebody else go to Proverbs 12. Who wants to take the Proverbs 6? All right, Steve, got Proverbs 6. Who's going to take Proverbs 12? All right, uh, Gerard. Okay, Proverbs 6, 16 to 19. You're going to have three verses, Gerard. I'll tell you them when you get, when you get there, okay? You want to read real loud, Steve? 6, 16 to 19. 16 to 19. You all know this. Okay, so I'm going to have Steve read that again, okay? I want you to read each one of those seven things that God hates, okay? So thumbs up, thumbs down for the, uh, you're, you're now the judge, okay? And so you got this group of guys. All right. Yeah, so thumbs up, well, thumbs down as they did it because they're being condemned, right? So thumbs up, they get a buy. So go ahead. A proud look. I'm not quite sure. I'm going to go thumbs up because I'm, I'm not sure what they look like at this moment. Go ahead. A lying tongue. Oops. <laughs> okay, that's one. Good. Hands that shed innocent blood. That's two. A heart that devises wicked plans. Devises wicked plans. We've got three. Feet that are swift in running to evil. Ooh, man, but it's not so good so far. A false witness who speaks lies. Well, we're not there yet, but we're going to get there. We know, we, we know 2020 they're going to get there. Go ahead. And one who sows discord among brethren. Well, they're certainly there. Okay, so do you think these guys knew this proverb? Yes. They suppressed the what? Truth. Proverbs 12. Let's start at um, verse 5. The thoughts of the righteous are right, but the counsels of the wicked are deceitful. The words of the wicked are lie in wait for blood, but the mouth of the so the thoughts of the righteous are right, but the counsel of the wicked is what? Beguiling, deceitful, trickery. So, so are they righteous or are they wicked? <laughs> wicked, okay. Uh, verse, where am I at now? Verse 20. 
counselors of peace have joy. All right, who are they here? The wicked. The hearts of the, the wicked devise evil, okay? Verse 22. Lying lips are an abomination to the Lord, but those who deal truthfully are his delight. So what are they to God? An abomination. Listen, this is, again, sad because I know that I am, the again, the religious, what? Establishment, quote-unquote. Do you realize that we've got to be careful of how we use the Word of God? We like, to, we like to defend ourselves, and we like to defend ourselves with the Word of God sometimes. Okay? And so, when, every time I read, they suppress the truth, they suppress the truth, they suppress the truth. I always think about myself here. Judge not lest you be judged. And with what judgment you ju- judge others, it shall be measured unto you. Right? And so, I can look at all these people, I can look at the people out there, and they're suppressing the truth. I can't believe they're doing it. Do I suppress truth? Do you read God's word every morning? You ought to be. You ought to be invest in digesting his word. But as you read it, and he just uncovers the truth to you, what do you do with it? Do you apply it to your life? Or do you kind of sweep some of it kind of under the rug? Like, ooh, maybe we'll look at this one later on. You know, ooh, you know? It's the same thing. So as I look at these guys, and they're, they're like beguiling, and, and they're an abomination to God. It's who they are. I don't want to be the abomination to God. So we have the plotters, okay? Their response to, to what Jesus is about to do and accomplish for them, for them, Jesus died for the sins of the whole world. Are they part of the whole world? He's getting ready to die for these guys. While we were at enmity, Christ died for us. Don't you wonder whether Nicodemus is at this meeting? You know, it's kind of interesting to know who might be there, and who wants them getting saved later on, okay? So anyways, so you got this going on, okay? But their schedule, they say that we want to do this, but not during the feast, okay? And so that's the, the feast. Now, again, I don't want to spend a lot of time on this one, because we'll look at it again later. But remember, the 14th day of Nisan is what is we refer to as Passover proper. So between Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John... There is different words that are being used to describe this, okay? So Passover was a one-day feast on the 14th day of Nisan. The Feast of Unleavened Bread was a seven-day feast that went from the 15th to the 21st, okay? The 15th and the 21st were holy convocations. They were high Sabbaths, okay? However, it became an eight-day event, which is referred to, to the Jews now as Passover. In, but the day that was actually Passover, what was called Passover originally, the 14th, became, became to be called the day of preparation. Because they would actually then eat the Passover on the 15th day. So they began to call the last seven days, instead of calling it unleavened bread, they called it Passover. And then the 14th day they called the day of preparation. It may all be confusing right now. And it may be confusing after a few weeks from now when I go over it again. But that's okay. But I encourage you to look at God's Word. God puts details in His words for us to be able to study. So it's not everything doesn't have to be a total mystery. Okay? So anyways, but the important thing for us here is that they realized how important this time was. And they didn't want Jesus arrested during this time. Why? What did it say? Because they what? 
They feared the people. What was getting ready to happen during this time? Jews from everywhere would be coming to the city. There would be a huge crowd coming for this time. Okay? And so they didn't want it to happen okay, because of the crowd. Also, if they wind up killing him on the 15th or on the 21st, those were holy convocations. They were, that was like total no-no. Okay? That's why they had to take Jesus down from the cross because they didn't want him hanging on a cross during the holy convocation. And so that's why the, 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 um, oh, the robbers, one on the left, one on the right, they had their legs broken so they would die before the beginning of that day. Jesus, when he came to Jesus, he was already dead. They stuck the spear up through him to make sure that he was dead, but he was already dead. Okay, and we'll talk about the, all the imagery that goes on into his death and how that plays out with, with the, um, the Old Testament. There's uh, so many prophecies that Jesus fulfilled in the way he died. It was just an amazing thing, okay? So, but again, their schedule is they're fearful still of the people, okay? So they want to do this, but they want to make sure that it's all done with trickery. Now, the second individual is Mary. Um, and what we read then about her is the value of this gift that she has. It's just an amazing thing. And so the, the picture there of Mary. And I want to do a, a quick aside here on um, Mary. Um, because Caleb and I were even talking about this this week. I think it was... It was a, and so I was a little bit wrong, actually, because I did more investigation. So there are numerous Marys um, in, the, um, in the New Testament, okay? And no, they're not all named after Mary, the mother of Jesus. It was just Miriam was a common name. Who was Miriam? Moses' sister. So all these Marys are actually named after Moses' sister, okay? Today, people, you know, like Catholics and stuff, they name their children Mary, they're Mary... They name them after Mary, the mother of Jesus, right? But Mary, the mother of Jesus, actually was named after the sister of Moses, okay? So there are numerous Marys. There are also numerous Shimons, okay, or Simons, okay? And so they're going to have this meal at Simon the leper's house, okay? And so there is sometimes when this can be confused with Simon the Pharisee, because Something happened at Simon the Pharisee's house that is going to be very similar to what happens at Simon the leper's house. And that is Jesus is going to be anointed with ointment. Okay? There are some distinguishing differences. A, the timing of Jesus' ministry, of when it happened. B, also description of how much ointment was actually used. Okay? So, um, and we're not told when at the, the house of Simon the Pharisee the name of the individual. And I can show you this later if you're really interested in this, but that it, it probably is not Mary of Magdala, um, even at Simon the Pharisee's house, because the fact that she is already named, and it would have made sense for Luke just to name her, that Mary came in, da-da-da-da-da-da, and he doesn't. Okay, So the fact that he doesn't um, doesn't bring this in. And so um, this is Mary of Bethany, who happens then to be the sister of Lazarus and the sister of Martha, not necessarily Mary of Magdala. Okay? So, with all that being said, though, it doesn't diminish or whatever what we're going to talk about. Okay? Um, and that is, first of all, the value of her gifts. We're told that she, she takes this, this um, alabaster jar and she breaks it and she pours out the ointment. Okay? Somebody go to Mark 14, verse 5. 
Okay, I'm going to read that real loud, Chuck. Okay, so, so we're told there by Mark, um, and I think Mark is probably, again, the scribe of Peter, okay, that this is Peter's um, perspective of that moment. And so that it's declared that this is valuable enough to be potentially more than 300 denarii, okay? So it might have been, been sold. Now, what's really interesting here is that when we write, read it might have been, we think that that should be a, what, Caleb? Might have been. Should be a, oh, we just talked about it on Wednesday. A sub, subjunctive, okay? Subjunctive is the mood of unreality, okay? So in Greek, you have all these different cases and such, okay, and moods, and you can say things. And so if I get a subjunctive, a mood of unreality, I could say, I, it might have been. But that's, I don't like that translation because... It's an imperfect active, or imperfect indicative, I'm sorry. An indicative is a statement of fact, truth. So, so it's okay worded, but you read it, and it sounds like what? Well, maybe, maybe not, right? No, no, this is a statement of fact, okay? This is an imperfect statement of fact that it would have been, it would have been sold for at least 300 denarii, okay? You say, well, what's the big deal about that? Well, 300 denarii. If you remember back in the, the parable of the, the landowner, when he hires the, 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 the laborers through the day, a denarii was a day's wages. And so if we say that minimum wage, I know it's not $10 an hour, but I'm going to round this to $10 an hour because throughout the United States, it's kind of on a balance. You know, some places it's a whole lot more, okay? But let's put it at $10 an hour for us to make it very easy for ourselves. That means that you make $80 a day as a minimum wage. 300 of those minimum wages is $24,000. This jar of ointment, they said, could have been sold for over 300 denarii. This isn't Bob going to Walmart and buying musk for men. <laughs> he wouldn't do it anyway. Marsha always asks, what's your favorite? She asked me, what's your favorite perfume? I said, you. You are my favorite perfume. Don't put any of that gucky stuff. Okay? I like you. Anyways, it saves me a lot of money. I looked up the world's, I had a slide, and I said, I'm not going to put this up. I mean, do you realize there's perfumes that sell for a million dollars? Yeah, what? It's so stupid. That's exactly, Andrew, that is exactly what I thought. That is so dumb. I mean, that's somebody who really has what? Too much, too much money. They pay off all my bills. Anyways, they got too much money. I got better things. To, anyways. And so, anyways, $24,000. Now, there are some people who, who then even say, well, wait a second. You know, that's not right. And so they want to say, well, it didn't cost that much. So there was an individual who actually then calculated the weight of a denarii in its silver, okay, because it was a silver coin that weighed so much, in that um, silver today goes about $3.62 an ounce. So anyways, the, the value of this would, would only have been $1,086. <laughs> 
I, okay, so it wasn't $24,000. It was still over $1,000. When's the last time you bought yourself a $1,000 bottle of perfume and then just broke the neck of it and poured it out at somebody's feet and on their head? Another way to think of it is, is it's, a, it's a year's wages. It's a year's. So it, for her, it may have been a relatively small compared to what we think, but if anybody else, a year's wages. Yes. That's big money. It was big. A year, a whole year's wages spent on this. And even if that is below a year's wage for you, I mean, I venture to say there's not a whole lot of us are going to spend $24,000 on a bottle of perfume and then just break it, okay? But for her, okay, the importance of this is, the, is in the virtue of her gift. It was an expression of Mary's devotion. Now, I want you to think about this. Mary took probably what was the most precious thing she owned. I mean, not many people got a $24,000 bottle of perfume. (laughs) And when you're asking yourself, because of his great love for you, what can you do for him? I want to read you. Psalm 116. I wish I could quote it to you. I started memorizing it. And as you get older, it's harder to memorize. And so I'm still working on it. But Psalm 116. That may not hit you like it hit me. It might, probably won't hit you. But I love this psalm. I was reading it the other day, and I just started meditating on it and started memorizing it. Psalm 116. I love Yahweh. Isn't that a great start? I love Yahweh. Man, this is my heart. I love him. I love Yahweh because he has heard my voice and my supplications. Because he has inclined his ear to me, therefore I will call upon him as long as I live. The pains of death surrounded me. The pangs of Sheol lay hold of me. I found trouble and sorrow. Then I called upon the name of Yahweh. Oh, Yahweh, I implore you, deliver my soul. Gracious is Yahweh and righteous Yes, our God is merciful. Yahweh preserves the simple. I was brought low, and he saved me. Return to your rest, O my soul, for Yahweh has dealt bountifully with you. For you have delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, and my feet from falling. I will walk before Yahweh in the land of the living. I believe, therefore I spoke. I am greatly afflicted. (laughs) I said in my haste, all men are liars. What shall I render to Yahweh for all his benefits toward me? What shall I render to Yahweh? What can I give Yahweh? What can I pay back to Yahweh for all of his benefits to me? I will take up the cup of salvation and call upon the name of Yahweh. I will pay my vows to Yahweh now in the presence of all his people. Precious in the sight of Yahweh is the death of his saints. Oh, Yahweh, truly, I am your servant. I am your servant, the son of your maidservant. You have loosed my bonds. I will offer to you the sacrifice of thanksgiving and will call upon the name of Yahweh. I will pay my vows to Yahweh, now in the presence of all of his people, in the courts of Yahweh's house, in the midst of you, O Jerusalem. Praise Yahweh. You know what I think Mary is doing? Exactly that. Oh, Yahweh, I love you. I love you. You've loosed my bonds. I don't know what her bonds was. It was kind of exciting when I thought this could have been Mary Magdalene, that Mary, Mary Bethany and Mary Magdalene were all one and the same, and that maybe this ointment was the, the, the mark of her trade, if you understand what I mean by that. 
But regardless of what it's about, she, she is so overwhelmed with what Jesus has done for her. The, the, the pains of death surrounded me, the pangs of Sheol, they lay hold of me. Well, it might not have necessarily been of Mary, but they certainly were what? Of her brother Lazarus. Do you remember? Lord, if you'd only been here, he wouldn't have died. And then she watched him call him up. Do you ever think of the fact that she still has this ointment? Even after Lazarus died? She didn't use it on her own brother. I mean, that's what it would have been used for somewhat, you know, to try to cover the stink. But she breaks the jar here. Now, some would say, well, it just basically could mean that she broke the, um, the wax ring. But the response of the disciples, which we'll get to in a moment, tells me that she must have what? She poured it all out. I mean, she didn't just take a little dab and anoint him and, little, you know, maybe just a little bit of extra dab or whatever. Because they could still sell it for 299 darn But it's all gone. All gone. And I ask myself, what am I willing to break open for Jesus? What am I willing to pour out for Jesus? Paul said, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, which is your reasonable, reasonable, your reasonable act of worship. It's not unreasonable. Why? Because he did it for you. He did it even more so. He who knew no sin. I know sin. But he who knew no sin became my sin. I'm going to put my in there if you don't mind. Became sin. Became my sin. In order that I might receive the righteousness of God. So that when God looks at me, he looks at me through his mercy seat. He looks at me through the righteousness of Christ, not the sinful ockiness of Bob. What can I render to Yahweh for all of his benefits to me? Do you appreciate what he's done for you? Do you, do you, do you fully, eternally comprehend what he's done for you. And he hasn't even gone on a cross yet for Mary. Do you get it? I mean, she's prophetically doing this ahead of time. I mean, all he did for her was raise Lazarus from the dead. He's going to die again. Think about it. I mean, Lazarus didn't live forever. He's still not hanging around in some place, is he? So when he raised Lazarus from the dead, it was so he could what? die again someday. But he, he has saved me eternally, forever. You can't kill me. How cold is that? You can stop my tent from existing on the earth, but you can't kill me. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. How much I owe him. I owe him everything. I owe him all I am. So all that I am should be offered upon the altar 
that he might alter all that I, I am. What would you do if God laid on your heart to sell your property, or maybe just a large portion of your property, so you could turn around and give it to the poor? That's what happened in the early church, right? That there were people selling property off. And they brought the proceeds into the church so they could minister to the poor of the church. Jesus told the rich young ruler to do what? Go and sell all you have and give it to the poor. Mary took what was most valuable to her. And she poured it. It was a, just an expression of her devotion. But we're told as well by Jesus that it was done in preparation for his, his burial, for his death. That she unknowingly, potentially unknowingly, I, I assume unknowingly, the way it's presented, was moved by God to do this because she was also fulfilling an act which God wanted accomplished. And according to the world, it didn't make any sense. It made no sense. I mean, in the end, a couple hours later, what did it matter? Did anybody get saved? Because she poured out her oil all over Jesus? No, it just made dissension in the church before the church became, right? Because now all the, the, the disciples are starting to... to to argue about whether it should have been done or not, right? And Jesus has to put a squelch to it and say, stop it, guys. You always have the what? Poor with you. But me, you don't always have with you. She has done this as an act toward my burial, toward my death. And then he says, and what she has done will be left for her as a Memorial. Wherever this gospel is preached, it will be spoken of what she has done as well. How cold is that? It may have seemed like something, like nothing at that moment. She's just overwhelmed by, by this thought that Jesus is going to die. She's overwhelmed by what, God, what he has done for her. And he, she just wants to, to, to do something of, of an act of devotion and, and tenderness toward him who has done so much for her. And so she takes this and she pours it out. I don't think that she, Jesus said, look, if, later on I'm going you know, to have this dinner and if you just uh, grab the ointment and, and pour it out on me, I'll make sure that everybody talks about this for all of eternity. It didn't happen that way. Do you get it? But here we are 2,000 years later talking about it. How cool is that? I hope those Jehovah Witnesses, ladies, are still talking about their encounter with that crackpot. Okay? They thanked me. It's not very often I have a Mormon Jehovah Witness thank me for my politeness. <laughs> Normally I don't leave that way. But I really, I was prayerfully asking God to help me to, to be, uh, be... Why? Because, again, always, I want... I don't expect... Little faith. Little faith. I don't necessarily expect that they're going to get saved on my, on my, on my porch. I would love to see it happen. But I just want to put the seeds in their heart that the Holy Spirit can use. That like today, 
They may be in their church someplace, and, and, and their, their, their false teacher is, is teaching them, and, and, and they're thinking, wait, this guy, this guy yesterday said that, that they changed our translation, and maybe they go back and they, do you get what I'm saying? You don't always know the impact of a little thing that, you're, that you do, that God leads you to do, what it's going to have in the lives of other people. Just a little thing that Mary did. It's a huge thing that Mary did. Jesus said it was a very important thing because she was anointing him for his burial. Wow. Could you imagine Mary when she heard that? That is not why I did it. Wow. Wow. I loved it, Chuck, the the comment about... Susanna Wesley having 17 kids and Charles being the 17th of them all. And you think about, if they chose to only have, be like the characters, they're not here, I can pick on them, right? Only 10 kids, you know? You know, I think of that with Anna and Andrew, you know, six and seven, you know? We were done. We only wanted four. God snuck a fifth one in with the twins, right? So we were done. But then God put on both of our hearts to have another. Then God put on both of our hearts that we're going to have another it wasn't a surprise. It wasn't an accident. They were purposeful. I can't wait to see what God has planned for Ann and Andrew. Not putting pressure on them, but I know that God, God's got a reason. Does it make sense? I don't know what it is. God's got a purpose for your life. Do you get it? You're here for a reason. How does he want to use you? Steve, you're a nobody. Yep. Amen but you're nobody who's having an impact upon homeless men in Augusta. And he used you to get other guys from a church to go down to try to have an impact upon homeless men who are now truck drivers and doing multiple things. How cold is that? It's very cold. But it doesn't end there, though, does it? That may be just a drop in the bucket to compare to what he wants to do with Steve. Do you get it? God's got some BSF. I'm envious of Chuck. Chuck gets to teach 300 men plus every Monday night. But you're only a quality control guy. You just work for a, a company down in the armpit of Waynesboro. I mean, I'm, I'm joking. You guys get, get make sense? But that's how the world wants to see it sometimes, right? But what God allows us to do is a phenomenal thing. Jonathan and Marjorie, think about them. They're just this, this couple from Greenville who now have a ministry in the Middle East working with um, the Islamic people. You use Jonathan to write a book. That's amazing. Yeah, Marjorie comes from an island. Yeah. Isn't it amazing how God does some of this stuff? What does he want to do with you? Final grouping, if you would, is the individual, and that is the betrayer, Judas. The provocation was the waste. The waste! What an utter waste! Of what could have been sold for over 300 denarii. And so if you look at Luke's version and John's version, you'll see that it was actually Judas who was the ringleader of, of all of this. We read about in Matthew about it being the disciples, but it was really Judas who started the whole process. Why? Because he was the keeper of the bag. He had the money. 
And there was discussions of whether what happened with the money. But he was the keeper of the bag. And so money became more important to him than what? Jesus himself. Think about that. Not ministry, at least according to what he said. He said this could have been sold for over 300 donari in what? Used to feed the poor, right. Used, used to minister to the poor. So by his words, he was very righteous. But I want to ask you, this is a hard, this is really hard, okay? This is rubber meets the road hard. What's more important, ministry to people or Jesus? We like to say they're what? One and the same. But they're not always one and the same. There are a lot of churches who have what is called a social gospel. They minister to the poor. That's a wonderful thing. I'm not knocking it. The problem is they don't give them Jesus. You feed them all their life and they go to hell. What good is it? You give them clothes, they look good, but they're going to hell. What good is it? Jesus said, this is what was better. It is more important for you to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength than anything else you do. I am committed to my wife only because I'm committed to Jesus Christ. That sounds awful. It sounds very unromantic. I know, I get it, woman. But I love, I mean, if it wasn't for Jesus, we'd be divorced a long time ago. I don't even know if I'd know my kids. I don't even know if I'd be alive. I don't know how many times I'd be married. I know who I was. I know how I treated her. And I know how she was. And there was no way she would have lived with me that long, treating her the way I treated her. It is more important for her, don't tell me if I'm right or wrong, for me to love God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength than to worry about loving her. Because if I love the Lord my God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, I will what? I will love her. Because he's told me to love my wife as Christ loved the church. Wow! I fall so short of that all the time. But I want to love her like Christ loved the church because I love God. Oh, I love Yahweh. Oh, how I love Yahweh. Because he heard my voice in my supplications. I cried out, God, if you could save this wicked soul, I'm yours. It wasn't a very glamorous prayer. I didn't say all the right words. But I cried from the depths of my heart when, the, when, when death had surrounded me, when the pangs of Sheol had laid hold of me. And I cried out, God, save me! And he what? He heard my cry. Literally, I was crying at that time, too. I really was. Not often I cry. I was crying. How cold is that? He was the keeper of the bag. But he's also the one whom Satan entered into. And it didn't take Jesus unawares. Now, this leads us to a discussion point. I don't have time to deal with it all. 
but I want to just put it in your, your mind, and I'll handle it succinctly, and we can talk about it later. Can a believer, then, have Satan enter into them? Can they have, be demon-possessed? The answer to that is no, no. Judas never was a believer. How do I know that? Because this happens. I know, it's cyclical reasoning, but I can use other scriptures that will tell me that. Does that make sense? So what I know is that he has all along been focusing on the wrong thing. He has never truly had faith in Jesus for who he was. Now, I understand the Holy Spirit hadn't been given to them, and they weren't sealed with the Holy Spirit yet, okay? But nonetheless, I still believe the fact is true, that Satan couldn't do anything with Peter, or do anything, um, couldn't possess Peter. Because we're going to see in a few weeks that, that Satan is going to ask Jesus to what? To sift Peter, to mess with Peter. And Jesus is going to give Satan what? Permission to do that. But he says, Peter, when you are then converted, when you are repentant, then turn around and encourage your brethren, right? It's not the same way with Judas. What happens with Judas? Satan enters him. Total different story. This is possession, not oppression. Okay? There's a difference between possession and oppression. Okay? So Satan, uh, Judas, opens himself up for this. How does he do it? Because he makes the decision. Think about this. He makes the decision to betray Jesus. When that decision occurred, at the same time, Satan enters into him. Satan cannot make you sin. The devil made me do it, honey. No, the devil doesn't make you do it. James 1 says that you are what? Drawn away of your own lusts. And then when the lust has conceived, it brings forth sin. And when sin has its final fruition, it brings forth death. Judas had a lust. I think it was probably a twofold lust. I'm going to give him credit, credit, if you would, on the first lust. What do you think his first foremost lust was? Get rid of the Romans. He was a zealot. He was a zealot. And he was looking for Messiah, but he wasn't looking for a Messiah to save him from his sins. He was looking for a Messiah to save him from the Romans. What Messiah are you looking for? Do you want a Messiah just to make you healthy and wealthy? Or do you want a Messiah that's going to save you from your sins? Too many, quote-unquote, believers want to live in their sins. They want to enjoy their sins and have God bless them anyway. That's the Messiah they want. That's not the Messiah that came. Jesus came to deliver us from our sins. Not to make me healthy and wealthy and wise. Well, made me wise. You get it? We make God in our own image. So, what do you think his second lust was? Money. <laughs> That's right. Lust of the eyes. So he had lust of pride, or pride of life, and lust of the eyes. Okay? It's, it's all there within him. Okay? And so when he makes a decision to give himself over to that, he really makes himself a decision to give himself over to Satan. 
okay? Just kind of put that in your, in your mind and think about that as you go through your life, okay? The payment, 30 pieces of silver. Interestingly, you have these verses on your sermon note sheet. You can look at it. But Zechariah 11 is a prophecy saying that that would happen. But Exodus 21 declares that 30 pieces of silver, note it's 30 pieces, not 30 talents, okay? Because elsewhere we talk about talents. This is probably 30 shekels. 30 shekels of silver was the price of redeeming a slave. So the lowliest. So when you go back into the law, the lowliest person, um, the value of that person was a slave. Their value was 30 shekels of silver. And so they gave to um, Judas the value of a slave. He said, we'll give you 30, 30 shekels of silver for it. And so he turns in the Savior for 30 shekels of silver. Not 30 talents. He didn't walk away a rich man. So I, again, I ask myself, what am I willing to betray Jesus for? What, what do I want? What am I willing to deny Jesus for? What will it take? So what was the plan? They said a convenient time. Again, what? When there's no people around. When the, when the, when the multitude is away. Why? Because they're afraid of the people. Hmm. They're not worried about God. They're worried about the people. Judas isn't worried about Jesus. He's worried about himself. So in the end, how have you responded to God's plan of salvation? Are you rejecting him? Are you loving him? Are you willing to sacrifice everything for him? Or are you betraying him? for just a little bit of something that the world has to give. What is he calling you to sacrifice in response to his sacrifice for you? I really believe that he is. Somewhere on the line, he's asking you to give something in response. He's not forcing it upon you. But we love him because he first loved us. Is there a need then to change the way you think and ultimately change the way you act? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your love. I thank you for your goodness to us. We are so unworthy of what you've done for us. Thank you, thank you, thank you, Lord, for your gift of salvation to us. God, I pray, though, that we wouldn't just talk about it, but that we would honestly live it out and respond to it, that we would offer up to you a sacrifice of praise, a sacrifice of thanksgiving for what you have done for us. God, I pray that as an assembly, we would be those who would be seen in our lives, Lord. Who would be zealous for you because of what you've done for us. In Jesus' name, amen.